You provide the fire. I'll provide the sacrifice. You provide the spirit. And I will open up inside. Fill me up, God. Fill me up, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come with your fire and burn away the dross. Come with your goodness and holiness and make us holy as you are holy. Amen. Good morning, Incarnation. And happy Advent, brothers and sisters. You know, one of the uh, major themes of Advent is the second coming of Christ. So just as we remember his first coming, his first Advent in humility, so also we prayerfully look forward to his second coming in glory. The season of Advent is not some kind of quaint Hallmark card precursor to Christmas. Let's get that clear. Rather, it's a challenge to Christian disciples everywhere to ready themselves, to quicken themselves for the end of the world. And an epic story deserves an epic ending. Amen? Now, it'll surprise almost none of you here to be reminded that my favorite movie trilogy of all times is The Lord of the Rings. Because it's not only a great story with wonderful Christian imagery and a beautiful soundtrack, but it's truly got an epic ending. So, spoiler alert, and if you haven't watched Lord of the Rings, you're still my friend. (laughs) But come on. on. Anyways, uh, after Frodo destroys the ring... Uh, destroys essentially the power of sin in an active volcano called Mount Doom, we see basically a cascade of victory, good over evil. So the eye of Sauron, who's like the devil, detonates and flames out forever. The eagles appear from on high, and they take care of the black riders. And the very ground opens up to swallow up the orcs. A catastrophe is defined as a sudden and sweeping turn for the worst. But J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, referred to this ending as a U-catastrophe, which is a word he made up. He enjoyed making up words and indeed making up languages. But essentially, it means the opposite. A U-catastrophe is an unexpected and widespread turn for the better. So Tolkien thought a word like this was needed in our language because even if such occurrences are rare, you catastrophes actually happen. In fact, they're quite central to the message of Holy Scripture, right? I mean, what would Holy Scripture be without the parting of the Red Sea? What would Holy Scripture be without the return of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity, as unexpected as that might be? What would Holy Scripture be indeed? What would our hope be without the resurrection of the Son of God? Indeed, in our New Testament lesson for today, St. Peter testifies to the ultimate eucatastrophe in Scripture and in history, namely, the second coming of Christ, and the simultaneous end of the world. 
If you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to our reading from 2 Peter 3. It's on page 1019. 1019 in your pew Bible. And the Apostle Peter says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord, which is a euphemism for the second coming and final judgment, will come like a thief. Now this phrase, this imagery comes directly from Jesus, and it means that no one will be able to predict the hour. Because when a thief comes to rob your apartment, he doesn't make an appointment. Peter continues, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, the moon, and the stars will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, this word exposed refers to a revealing by fire, a laying bare of the works and the secret thoughts of men before the judgment seat of God. Just as iron passes through the flame and it shows the quality of the metal, it burns away all the impurities, so St. Peter asserts that we will all pass through the fire, exposing what is truly in us. And just as Peter preached a few weeks ago from John 15, we're all going to get cut. Some of us will be cut and pruned so that we might bear fruit, and other branches will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Verse 11 continues, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So Peter wants our knowledge of these things to quicken our lives, to live lives that reflect the kingdom of God. Waiting for and hastening. Hastening in the sense of doing the king's will while he's away, and thus hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. Whew. Hanging with me here? Now, if we're not careful and we don't read closely, we might uh, arrive at the mistaken conclusion that this passage is primarily an image of destruction, as if God desires to throw all of his creation into the cosmic trash can. But the next verse clarifies that the message here is not primarily about destruction, but rather of death followed by resurrection. Verse 13 says, but according to his promise, his promise in the prophets, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here we see that the story of Christ in his death and resurrection is actually the prototype for the entire cosmos. Just as his body passed through death and out the other side, so all of creation will pass through the fire and rise again as the new heavens and a new earth by the power of God. Now, I told you an epic story deserves an epic ending, right? And according to St. Peter, believing all these things about the future has practical implications for our holiness and godliness in the present. How so? How do these things relate? Well, think with me for a moment about the story of Robin Hood. 
which provides a good illustration of this point. If you remember the story, the town of Nottingham was under an, 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 an oppressive imposter king that was taxing the poor to death. And Robin and his merry men, they weren't just like petty thieves. They didn't just like love stealing things. They were loyalists to King Richard, who they believed would one day return and set things right. So while they were waiting for the king's return, they decided to sort of like band together and live their lives how they knew the true king would want them to live if he were among them. And they did this even while he was away. And church, this is essentially who we are. We are a band of brothers and sisters that encourage one another to live our lives according to the values of the king, resisting the oppression of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But what about those citizens of Nottingham and the story who didn't think that King Richard was going to come back? How did that belief affect their life and conduct? Well, in essence, their denial of final accountability led them either to despair on the one hand or to become complicit in the injustice all around them. And there was something similar going on for St. Peter in his final years. While he was living in Rome, false teachers had arisen throughout the churches of Asia Minor who were denying the second coming of Christ and the final judgment of the wicked. Living without any appropriate fear of the return of the king, these heretics promoted greed and sexual immorality. As 2 Peter 2.14 puts it, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. What Jesus would refer to as children of the devil. So in response, St. Peter wrote this circulating epistle to all the churches in Asia Minor, which counteracts this false teaching by giving many biblical examples of God's judgment. However, regarding the return of Christ, these, heret these heretics, they were bolstered in the eyes of many, uh, many unsteady souls, at least by the fact that to them, Jesus seemed too long delayed. This can't be true. He should have come by now. And it's to this error that St. Peter addresses his words in chapter 3, verse 8, which is perhaps the most famous verse in the entire epistle. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, don't make the mistake of thinking that God is subject to time in the same way that we are. Time is merely a creature. God is the creator. Peter wants us to know that when Jesus promised to return soon, the word soon shouldn't be understood in a univocal way as meaning exactly the same thing to the Son of God as it means to impatient human beings. Nor should it be understood to be clear in an entirely equivocal way as if soon really means something more like never. So St. Peter continues to pastor their perspective. That's what he's doing in all this. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So here we come to the real reason why Jesus has not yet returned. It's because he wants to give time for as many people as possible to come to repentance. I have a question for you this morning, just a quick straw poll. How many of you have come to know Jesus in the last five years? Raise your hand if you've come to know Jesus in the last five years. Okay, so I'm seeing a few hands, okay? Now, keep your hands raised. All of you, raise them nice and high. Raise them nice and high. Yep. If, if you've come to know the Lord in the last five years, raise your hand nice and high. All right. How about the last 10 years? If you've come to know the Lord in the last 10 years, raise your hand. All right, how about if you've come to know the Lord Jesus in the last 20 years? Raise your hand. Now, let's look around the room for a minute. Beloved of God, did you not know that Jesus was waiting for you? His heart was patient, not desiring that any one of you should perish. In fact, flip back with me, if you would, to the prophet Ezekiel chapter 33. It's on page 721 of your Bibles. Ezekiel 33, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Old Testament. Look down at me, with me, if you would, at the beginning of verse 10. The Lord says to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? In other words, the people of God have finally realized their sinfulness and they're in despair because of it. They're wondering, how can we even live? But the Lord responds to them tenderly in verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure. Turn to your neighbor and say, no pleasure. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So here the Lord himself begins to plead with his people, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So next time a troll on social media tells you, I can't believe in a God that takes pleasure in sending people to hell, you can respond, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Yes, we believe in a God of justice and that our moral decisions as human beings matter. And yes, the Bible is clear about final judgment. But as surely as the Lord lives, he swears by his own existence. He loves his creation and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, he wants us all to come to repentance. This is the heart of God and has always been the heart of God. Not to deny his role as a just judge, but to see as many people saved as possible. This is the message that cries out to be reaffirmed today by all Bible-believing Christians because there's a strand of theology that's become popular that teaches the opposite. That God doesn't want all people to come to repentance. And what a spiritually damaging message this is. Indeed, these false teachers go so far as to declare that Christ only died for the elect, 
a, quote, limited atonement, that they argue that the cross was not even intended as a propitiation for the sins of the whole world, as we affirm every week from 1 John chapter 2, but only for the sins of some. Now, by contrast, the Apostle Peter is clear that the cross of Christ paid the price for everyone, even these heretics that he's criticizing. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then here's the key phrase. He says, Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now I ask you, beloved, what could this mean except that Jesus bought these heretics on the cross and that all the denying was on their side and not his? All of this is reminiscent of the time when Jesus wept over the holy city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he lamented, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under under her wings and you were not willing. I was willing, Jesus said, but you were not. According to St. Peter, these theological distinctions are crucial. A few years ago, my buddy Aaron, who's a Baptist pastor, was discipling a young man who was following, falling into some of this kind of like limited atonement line of thinking. They were playing basketball together and talking, and Aaron promptly just stopped dribbling and pointed to the other side of the court and asked this young man, you see those, those people over there playing on the other side of the court? And uh, he said, yeah. And he said, did Jesus die for them? And when the young man couldn't give him a straight answer... Aaron wisely warned him, that's a problem. Now, some of you might be saying, Taylor, why are you being so hard on Calvinists and limited atonement this morning? Doesn't this all just come from an honest interpretation of Paul's letters? And yes, they've made their case ad nauseum. But it's important to note that these kinds of interpretations were roundly rejected by the early church. And even more to the point, Peter is writing to clarify the proper interpretation. The point is that Paul is not easy to read. Peter says so himself. Look at me at verse 15. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all the letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So that's right. Peter affirms Paul's letters as scripture. He just asks that we take care to interpret them in light of the rest of the apostolic witness. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he says this to us too, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You know, it's, it's actually quite common for scholars to have a dismissive attitude toward the witness of 2 Peter in the New Testament canon. It's not a very popular book any way you slice it. And one of the reasons for this is that it doesn't comport 
with some of the most common misinterpretations of Paul. And there are two other reasons why people often reject or avoid 2 Peter. First, there are some scholars who reject the authorship of St. Peter, a view that Pastor John and I would both repudiate, because not only does the author identify himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, but he describes himself as an eyewitness of the transfiguration later on in chapter 1. Peter even refers to this as his second letter in chapter 3, verse 1, which is an obvious callback to 1 Peter. Now, perhaps the style of 1 and 2 Peter would be surprising for a humble fisherman, but we've already learned at the end of 1 Peter that he wrote with the help of a man named Silvanus, elsewhere called Silas, who was obviously more educated in Greek than this fisherman. So again, anyone wishing to deny the clear authorship of Peter faces a massive burden of proof. Furthermore, while this practice of falsely ascribing authorship known as pseudepigrapha was practiced in the ancient world, it was rejected by the early Christians as a form of lying. The Apostle Paul rejects it in 2 Thessalonians, and in the second century, Tertullian tells of an elder who tried to manufacture a third Corinthians, and he got booted out of his office. Uh, one of the uh, ways that I, I knew that I really loved Pastor John and that I wanted to do ministry with him, we were in seminary. He had just gotten out of this class and they were talking about the pseudepigraphal writings of Paul and mentioning First uh, Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus and how maybe this wasn't written by Paul. And I remember John coming out of the classroom really angry and he said, man, this pseudepigraphal stuff is for the birds. <laughs> 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 and I was like, I love that guy. <laughs> there are several books in the New Testament that scholars try to, they try to impugn the authority in this same way. First and second Timothy, first and second Peter, Jude, but whatever shade they mean to cast uh, uh, on these uh, texts by this critique, we know it's not an option for Orthodox Christians because you know what we call second Peter? The word of God. <laughs> All right, hang with me today because there's a lot of meat and not a lot of fat. The second and perhaps more understandable reason why 2 Peter is avoided is because of the tone and the content. It's, it's got a severe tone, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to the topic of final judgment against heretics. It's fair to say that this is not the kind of Bible book that you turn to for like a spiritual pick-me-up. But to this criticism and to our own hearts, we ought to reply that strong medicine often doesn't taste very good, but it's still good for our health. We don't come to the Bible primarily to be comforted but to learn the truth and to be healed. Otherwise, we may cut out other fiery figures like Elijah or John the Baptist. Heck, we might cut off a whole bunch of the teachings of Jesus who could be pretty fiery himself. In fact, I want to challenge you this Advent to take up the two epistles of Peter and read them deeply for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit for fresh insight. Don't avoid 1 Peter just because it has some tough things to say about the role of suffering in our sanctification. 
And don't dismiss 2 Peter just because it speaks of final judgment. Fear of hell is not a good reason to avoid the Bible. On the contrary, perhaps 1 and 2 Peter are just the kind of strong medicine you need to snap you out of the spiritual malaise of our age as we await the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But my point this morning is not to just like preach the comforting bits and then send you off to deal with the tough parts on your own. So the rest of our time this morning, we're going to face the fire together, so to speak. Throughout the scriptures, fire functions as both a purifying image for some as well as a final loss for others. But the first thing to note is that the image of fire is just that. It's it's imagery used to communicate biblical truth. It may or may not be literal. In fact, the image of darkness is also used for hell in 2 Peter, including gloomy darkness, chapter 2, verse 4, and utter darkness, chapter 2, verse 17. And if we're taking things too literally, we may ask, well, how could both like fire and darkness coexist? But that kind of literalism is not the real point. As my old mentor used to tell me, when you're reading scripture, don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. The main takeaway for us should be that hell is a place that none of us would ever want to be, whereas the new heavens and the new earth is a place of eternal bliss with God. This new creation is also described in verse 13 as a place in which righteousness dwells. Indeed, unrighteousness cannot abide in the presence of the thrice holy God. Do we know this? Revelation 21 verse 27 adds that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But none of us are totally clean, right? And all of us act falsely from time to time. So how do we get there? This brings us to the second function of the fire, which is purification. The image of purifying fire is also pervasive throughout Holy Scripture. For example, in Isaiah 6, the prophet uh, has his unclean lips purified and is sinned atoned for by means of a burning coal. You remember this text? Or in the Gospels, John the Baptist famously declared, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here again, fire is portrayed as a good thing, as a gift flowing from Jesus. We want the fire to burn away the dross and make us holy like he is holy. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 3, St. Paul presents us with a strikingly similar image as the one described by his fellow apostle, St. Peter. So let's turn there for a moment to page 953, 1 Corinthians 3, page 953. This passage refers to God's people as a temple with Christ as the only valid foundation and to kingdom ministry as a kind of construction project. And Paul says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed 
by fire. Now notice that the word revealed is functioning very similar to the word exposed in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, any quality work, any quality ministry that we do with love and care in this life will survive into the kingdom that is to come. Whereas the wood and the hay and the straw will be burned up. And Paul concludes, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, a son or a daughter of God will not lose their salvation for doing sloppy ministry, but their labors will have been done in vain. On the other hand, if they build with care, then the reward will follow them into the new creation, which is a very common theme in the parables of Jesus. Amen? Now, at this point, some of you may be saying, hey, I see that you're citing scripture, but all this purifying fire stuff sounds totally new to me. I thought all we had to do was believe in Jesus. And first of all, if that's the way you're wanting to frame it, then no. Because scripture clearly teaches that faith without works is dead. But on a deeper level, beloved, we need to understand that the gospel is concerned with both forgiveness and with purification, both with initial justification and ongoing sanctification, with baptism for the remission of sins and with baptism by fire. Indeed, the reason why Jesus is named Jesus, right? We're almost in the Christmas season here. According to the promise of the angel in Matthew 1.21 is because he will save the people from their sins. Not just forgive us of them, but save us from them. This is the fuller purpose of Christ. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, would you really want it any other way? Would you want the Heavenly Father not to have his pruning shears in hand? Would the good news be just as good if it didn't involve our transformation from the inside out? With his characteristic clarity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life that he has. By what I call a good infection, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. This is what St. Peter refers to as becoming partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4. This is what he means in the final verse of this epistle about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can actually grow in grace. Did you know that? Because grace is not just a promise of pardon. It's a power that purifies. And speaking of that power that purifies, I leave you this morning with one final image of sanctification from 2 Peter, the image of a pure and spotless bride. 
Verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Now, this word beloved is one of Peter's favorite titles to call the church. He uses it five times in this chapter alone. And by imitation, you may have noticed that it's one of my favorite things to call you. In Greek, the word beloved, agapetos, and I'm sure you hear the word agape, means loved by God or loved by Christ. And here the title occurs within Peter's discussion of St. Paul because of this whole business of us being without spot and blemish is an obvious callback to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife. He had said in Ephesians 5.25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, And listen to this, beloved, without spot, same Greek root, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, excuse me. And Paul goes on to say in verse 34, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So how does Christ love his bride? by making her holy, sanctifying her of any spot or wrinkle, spot or blemish. Not so much on the outside, but on the inside, amen. So beloved, let us not resist the loving purposes of the bridegroom in our own lives. The sanctification of the bride, the baptism by fire, and even the melting away of the heavenly bodies are all a part of the same redemptive work of Christ and he will see it through to the end. Because after all, whether it comes to the cosmos or our own wayward hearts, an epic story deserves an epic ending. Amen.